any chance I'll ever get will convert a 401k into an IRA, which I would not recommend for everybody. There's there's pros and cons of it. It's just that I want to be able to control the investments I can have. Yeah, how else could you die with zero, Diggles? You got to take that account balance to zero by buying individual stocks. Yeah, exactly. Especially the ones I'm buying. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I'm back, baby. I'm back. Sorry. I'm excited to see your face in the States, man. It feels good. It feels It felt great to be away. It feels good to be back. You know, I had another one of my really good buddies in Australia at a similar time, same time, got back a couple of days ago. And uh, my question for him is how it changed his worldview. How do you feel, man? What what changed for you? I know it was only two weeks, but... The, this, there's probably a few things in there, but the thing that sticks out the most is that Americans are so ridiculous. We are a ridiculous, entitled, uh, just mean set of people. <laughs> that's that, That's what stands out the most to me. I think I told you, uh, there are a couple examples of this, but I think I told you one brief little story of a police officer in New Zealand where we were clearly in the wrong for yeah. like what we were doing. Yeah. And the police officer was like, please, please leave the area. And then came up to came up to us and went, actually, I'm sorry, that was overly harsh. And <laughs> as I, I said, like, oh, please, wow. and was incredibly kind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was like, what? And then we get back to, we had to stop by LAX in Los Angeles on the way back in and within about three minutes there was one of the workers was driving you know those carts that will deliver people across the airport was driving one of those almost ran over like an old woman that was trying to get off the plane and she looked back and she goes seriously like the driver (laughs) said this to her and i was like this is this is the difference between america and the rest of the world so that's a big takeaway we can be nicer to people I, I have that takeaway every time. That's why I like to go international so much. Yeah. Americans are jerks. <laughs> Do you think I hear that take frequently, but then I also hear, but that's kind of this uh, entitlement and confidence. It, it helps Americans build businesses. Oh, like, yeah. There's this arrogance about like, I'll just, oh, I'll just build the next Facebook or do you see the pros and cons there? Oh, absolutely. I didn't say Americans were jerks and therefore I'm moving out of the country. I took a picture of the <laughs> sign that said, welcome to the United States. It is a, it's a part of who we are. I think there's a, the danger is in not having the right guardrails, right? Letting things go off the cheesy, the chain, you know, Completely. too often. Cause you got You got to figure out how to manage it. You got to control that, that, that power and emotion, but it's so powerful and it's what makes America, America. So I, I think that a lot more gets done here. And sometimes it's to the detriment of people getting like steamrolled and run over and whatnot. It's kind of what America is and we just need to be able to control it. But it was, it was the contrast is so strong. Yeah. So I had some real live uh, reporting happening in Australia and I need you to confirm is this true. I was told that you were going around the country telling people to call you by the nickname, the Dougals. Is this true? This is very true. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Our listeners are everywhere. 
<laughs> exactly. I, the only way to do that properly is kind of like in a a stereotypical leprechaun-y kind of way. Like you get down <laughs> kind of in a squat position with your legs wide and just, I'm didgeridoodles. That's the, that's really the only way to, to do that. But they, uh, they're they so nice over there. They went, oh, look at that gentleman asking to be called didgeridoodles. We love that guy. Oh, I can't take it. All right. We better talk some investing. Okay. The thing I really want to touch on is retirement readiness. There's so many facts and figures that get thrown out around this, and it's hard to kind of bring it all together, if I'm being honest. But there are a couple things that I saw recently, one of which you shared, that gets me, I don't want to continue being concerned about the consumer. I don't want to. I want to be excited about the consumer. I want to push the consumer forward. I want to bolster the consumer. Trying to think of other synonyms for support. I can't think of any. But that's what I want to do for the consumer. Meanwhile, I'm seeing things like only one in 10 low-income workers. They measured this by a median income of 19K, looks like, annual earnings, between the ages of 51 and 64. So you're on the verge of retirement at that point. Only one in 10 had any funds put away for retirement in 2019. This is compared to one in five. So you're looking at 10% versus 20%. Some will call that half compared to 2007. That was, that was before the, the Great Recession. Only the top 10% of older workers by income have increased their retirement assets since 1992. 1992? Dude, they're just uh, so many thoughts here. They're just taking, they're just thinking our politicians and our government actually knows what to do. And they're taking the lead of the government, which never balances their budget, always spends more money than they take in. There's no good examples out there that teach people how to do it. Automatic savings accounts, which are government mandated in Australia, speaking of Australia, um, are not a thing in the US. Like the average American is set up to fail when it comes to retirement. But Douglas, there's other points here. Who said who said retirement's even a thing? I, I mean, retirement didn't used to be a thing. Do we have to assume that people need to stop working? And right off into the sunset. Well, let me let me put it this way: If you say, and let me, actually, I'm gonna drop one more stat. I'm gonna be a question. I'm gonna do this via question, and then I'm gonna answer your question. Okay. What percent of Americans aged 55 to 66 have no retirement savings? So before I I brought up low income, this is just overall. What percent 55 to 66 have no retirement savings? Uh, 50 ish. Yeah, it's roughly half. I, I want to drop that before answering your question, because what if you replace retirement savings? Because it's a great question. What if you replace that with safety net for life or nest egg for their children? Change your mindset? Yeah, completely. No, I'm, I'm not in the boat um, and never will be that people should not save for the future in and out of retirement for like for retirement and for general everyday unforeseen expenses. So it's not who I am. I thought um, you were part of the, the Fern group, you know, Ferns. No financially independent, retire, never. No, oh, sorry. Well, <laughs> I, I might actually be. Yeah. <laughs> there was, it was a play on the fire be. group, the fire group, which is financially independent, retire early. Douglas, you didn't even know that I read, uh, Die with Zero this week by Bill Perkins, oh, uh, energy not. trader. I did not. Um, grew up in the Midwest, made his money or started like on Wall Street and then actually made his money in Houston. 
as an energy options trader who firmly believes that if you are on the other end of the spectrum here, let's say you have enough money to live for the rest of your life, your job is to start spending that money with a plan to get to zero by your expected death date, including things like charitable giving, giving money to your kids while you're still alive rather than while you're dead. Like it's a really interesting counterintuitive take and there's a lot to be learned from there. But so you're getting me on a weird week to talk about this (laughs) because that is all fresh in my mind. To add to your point about 50% of people not having any money for retirement, here's the median 401k balances from Fidelity by generation. So Gen Z has... Uh, 2,500 bucks. Gen Z is still really young at this point. Millennials median balance is like 16,000. Gen X, 44,000. And Boomer, 61,000. What Bill Perkins talks about in his book is like, yeah, when you have 6 million, that's it's time to move on. And the median balances are more like 60K. I mean, this is a stark contrast between the haves and the have-nots. Yes, what I would I love the the point you just brought up, and I want to talk about that a little bit. I'll also say that retirement savings and four hundred one k balances are not the same thing, although they're obviously sure. correlated. I, for one, any chance I'll ever get will convert a four hundred one k into an IRA, which I would not recommend for everybody. There's there's pros and cons of it. It's just that I want to be able to control the investments I can have. Yeah, how else could you die with suit? zero diggles you got to take that account balance to zero by buying individual stocks yes exactly especially the ones i'm buying if i see a pe under 200 i stay away (laughs) i hope everyone gets the joke there just yeah so you know i'll just give diggles a hard time um that's why he's going to ra in part there's also uh, other benefits but uh that's not for everyone most people it in general should have etfs in their 401k or IRA. Two, I haven't read the book Die With Zero, but maybe to the broader point, you tell me that this is not congruent with the broader point, is contributing to the economy is an important component. And so if you, if everyone, let's take it to the extreme, if everyone took all the money they earned and just put it into a bank account and never bought anything, the economy would come to a crashing halt. So it's important that you that one just doesn't hoard, 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 but you contribute back in some way. That might be consumption by spending. You brought up charitable giving, right? So that's investing in, I don't know, in places that are for the betterment of society. Right? You can think about it in different ways, but I do, I do think that's important. I don't know if that's the broader point Bill Perkins is making. No, so the book has no nothing to do with this broader let's support the economy uh, talking point that you kind of went to. But let's talk about Davos Zero for a little bit. His stance is basically you can do a quick calculation on how much money you need for the rest of your life. And the way you can do that is you can look at a life expectancy calculator, which will take in things like your weight, if you smoke, you know, all the general stuff and give you a bell curve, a normal curve that says, hey, you probably have, you'll probably live till 82, you know, based on genetic factors and everything else. You can take that number, you can subtract it from your current age. And then you can look at your current annual spending. Uh, You can basically multiply that together and you need about 70% of that. Um, And the reason you only need 70% of that is because the funds you have invested continue to grow over, say, the next 40 years of your life. 
uh, once you reach that threshold, and you, some people reach that threshold at 35, most people would reach that threshold at 55 or 65. Most of your wealthier individuals would reach that threshold somewhere in their 50s or 60s. What actually happens in America, if you look at the net worth by age, is it typically peaks around like 70 to 75. Mm-hmm. And at 70 to 75, you can't do all these experiences that maybe yeah. were on your so-called bucket list because you don't have the health to do it. So he has like a pretty elaborate plan around. It's not a formal bucket list, but it's like these are the things that really give me joy or would give my family members joy. And then planning for what age of life you'd have to do those things. The simplest example is if you want to go climb Kilimanjaro or Everest or whatever, don't sit around saving money and wait to try and do that at 68 because you don't have the health to do it. It's like a really thoughtful approach to how you maximize the value that money can bring in terms of experience to get the most out of life. And he talks about experience dividends, which I think are just fabulous. So if you and I manage to go to Vegas, celebrate the 40th birthday party, that's going to bring us joy for the rest of our life. And we're not going to remember how much money we spent. We're going to remember the times we had together, right? Um, Really insightful and counterintuitive book. I don't want to talk about it too much, but his point is simply, listen, guys, if your net wealth is going to peak at 75, you did it wrong. Let's Let's be conscious about having your net wealth peak closer to 50 or 55, making sure you still have plenty of money and then doing that. I'll pause and then I have one more point on the book. Yeah, so... The broader point is make sure that you're taken care of in the future. And then the rest of it you can use for experiences and whatnot. Some version of that. But that first yeah. point is important. It's not, it's not just have all the experiences that you want today, live your life for today. It's do as much as you possibly can. Or sorry, <clears throat> do what you what calculations, whatever, according to the calculations here, says that you'll need to take care of yourself in the future, your family, whatever that might be. And then don't just hoard the rest. Yeah. If you're a cold-hearted mathematics guy, like an actuary or something, you <laughs> can actually say, oh, you know what? I'm 23 years old and I, I don't really have money to do backpack around Europe, but I'm going to find a way to get that money because my earning power is going to be so much greater when I'm 30 and 40 and 50 that I, and I won't have the opportunity to backpack around Europe with friends that like, it's just yeah. about leveling yeah, yeah, yeah. out. Yeah your expenses, um, knowing that it will come. So then the point about giving to charities or children earlier rather than later is kind of common sense, but it's, it goes against how America works. So most people would die in their eighties and their kids would be in their sixties at that point. At that point, if they receive a windfall inheritance, doesn't really do them any good. They already bought the house. They already raised the kids. They might've already paid for the kids college. So the money shows up on their door, maybe when they don't even have the health to travel around the world, if that's what they want to do. His point is just, once you have done the calculation to say, I have what I need, you want to put that money in people's hands that you can actually watch their life improve or them get some experience dividends with you in front of you. Like maybe that means you're all traveling together and doing fun things. I I think it's a really wise point, but it's also such taboo to talk about. Like, I don't know how you go to anyone and be like, Hey, listen, 
you need to give money away now because it's not really your place and it's it's awkward but such a solid i to me that's the most valuable takeaway of the book is like have those experiences with people you love when you can and if you writing a check to do that if you're able enables that sooner rather than later everyone benefits i i think the broader point i really i think is is fascinating and important and i would love to get a sense of what that might mean for folks that don't get to six million dollars just using the number that you threw out earlier which might have been made up yeah how do you do that at different income brackets because the reality for many people is that you're attempting to get to something that isn't survival mode by the time you're 60. And so there, there's, there's, but there's something to figure out there, right? Some of that might be budgeting. Some of that might be income. Some of that might be like, there's a lot of factors that go into that. So it's hard to make it incredibly simple, but I think that there's, there's something to figure out of how to do that for, I'll say that the average American or a varied number of Americans just stick in the U S for a second. Yep. It's all the same equation that I talked about earlier, but let's, let's go back to this article, right? If half of Americans don't have any retirement savings or even like a emergency fund, they don't meet step one of his criteria, which is like, take care of yourself first. So I think another challenge with the book is it talks to a very small percentage of Americans that are the type that have been thrifty throughout all their life that have been great savers. And the problem with that is when they get to 55, they go, why would I, why would I start spending money now? Like I've spent my whole life living significantly below my means. So that's a, another huge challenge is you have these embedded great saving habits that have been around for decades upon decades. And then you ask those people to switch. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a there's a woman that was interviewed for this piece and she was saying, I think now she was 66, I believe is the age she is. And mm-hmm. she's saying she doesn't have any money for retirement. She sold a house that she owned and then bought a house with two other women that she lives in at this point so that she can save some money. And she said, my whole life, I've lived in the live for now philosophy. And well, that hasn't turned out too well for me. It gets to that the point of what you brought up. There's there's that balance of figuring out taking care of future self and then also spend. And the difference sometimes there's, again, this is so nuanced that it's hard to talk of, uh, across a wide array of different like income brackets, experiences, backgrounds, et cetera. But to talk simply for a second, sometimes there's only a slight difference between the life that she did live potentially and the life she has now, which might've been putting away a yeah. little bit. That might not have been noticed oh, she, along the way. Right? She wouldn't it's, it's hard to notice know. It. Yeah. It's hard to know. Yep. One last thing. I mean, I think you can't talk retirement savings. You're right. It's so nuanced that on a podcast, you can't give guidance or advice. Other than to say, if your employee matches, employer matches a percentage of your salary and you're not taking advantage of that free money, that's about the dumbest thing you can do. So let's do a hypothetical example where your employer... Uh, matches 3% of your salary. Even if you only want to play the game and pull that money out, you can pull that money out with only a 10% penalty. So you could put in 3% of your salary, get the 3% match, which is free money. That's a, a basically a 3% immediate raise for you. 
And then you could a year later pull that money in. And that would be idiotic. But like, don't leave free money on the table, guys. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. And then if you truly want to be great about it, let's get to the 10 to 15%. There's so many good books out there, but my favorite would be Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, uh, that talks about the power of long-term compounding and go from there. Like you'll be in great shape. And then you have the Bill Perkins problem, the die with zero, the how am I going to spend? How am I going to get my experience dividends yeah. because yeah. I have enough money set aside? That was a meteor combo than I thought it was going to be. Thank you. What else you got? All right. Last week I did my rant on Yellow Corporation and how they mm-hmm. were about to go bust. Turns out we called that one. They basically, I think they filed for bankruptcy on Monday and we recorded on Saturday. And then the world is idiotic and I'd like to, I, <laughs> oh, this actually ties into our previous conversation. At one point, Yellow stock was up 500% this week or last week. Dougals, do these people not know that the debt gets paid out before the equity? And like, I haven't done a deep dive of their balance sheet. Maybe there's some assets there, but come on, people. The company files for bankruptcy and it's, it's up five times. Like, just, yeah. we're still in the meme stock nonsense. Like, raise yeah. interest rates 10% tomorrow, J Pal. All right. 10%. <laughs> just go to 15% interest rates. <laughs> Call it a day. If you'd get people to stop doing stupid stuff like this, I mean, come on. I don't. I think people are saying the stock is worth what we say it's worth. That is it. It is It is not worth any sort of like earnings multiple. It's worth what we say it is worth. I think is what's being said. Can I, can I stick on the yellow chain for a second and go back to something Please. you brought up last week around the logo? So this week I read this piece. That just, it made me, I was like, oh, skippity do that. This, it's a fast company article called Yellow Trucking Maybe Shutting Down, but its logo remains iconic. Okay. I'm going to read you one paragraph. I'm I, sorry. It's a whole paragraph, but I feel like I got to read the whole paragraph to you because Please. it, it just, it went all up in the face of what you were talking about last week around the logo. You're joking about the logo. Yeah. Yeah. Yellow's logo is simple enough. The word yellow in robust, no-nonsense, all-caps, sans-serif, black type, within a similarly sturdy, black-bordered, trapezoidal holding shape that is colored a lovely shade of, well, orange. The cognitive dissonance inspired by the tension between the color in the name and the color in the logo is enough to imbue the mark with a tinge of uncanniness. It's not like the jolt of the Stroop effect. The psychological discomfort we feel when we see, for instance, the word blue written in red ink. It's subtler, less jarring, and more mysterious. Seeing the logo for a moment, we question ourselves, is that color actually yellow? We are left to wonder just what the heck is going on. You know, I love that paragraph. I read it twice. And I think that hopefully the title of this episode can just be like a huge digital eye roll. Because anytime the author pulls out cognitive distance, like what what are they even talking about there? I, 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 but hey, where, where do you fall on the yellow train? Is the logo good or bad? So first of all, I didn't even think about the yellow's logo until last week. Oh, you, you never? Oh, dude, I did that paragraph. That was like me at six years old driving across the country, being like, <laughs> "Is that is that orange? Is that?" <laughs> I didn't. I didn't focus on the 
uh, typeface and the horizontal logo. I mean, as apparently this author did, but there's something to be said. Maybe that's why the stock went up 500% this week, because someone's going to get to use that logo. It could be. I mean, the trapezoidal holding shape alone. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that. I really loved it. Okay. I really did. I want to hit on, I'm reaching to the fishbowl, this really short David Einhorn interview. David Einhorn runs Greenlight Capital. We brought him up a couple times here on the pod. There's this interview on the Money Maze podcast. An interview might be an aggressive term. It was 17 minutes long. So it's really David saying some things. Is pretty much what it was with a couple ads in there. 17 minutes with ads, FYI. So, Wait, two, there's like two ads and 17 minutes? Yes, yes, exactly. So anyway. This is why y'all got to get a premium subscription for Skippy Diggles. We're not <laughs> throwing ads your way. Come on. Mm-mm. We get offers. I mean, just like, it's not for us right now. Okay. I'm going to drop a few points here. Okay. And I just want to get your reactions. One, David Einhorn says, the value investing industry has had irreparable harm what's your take i don't care i'm still okay. gonna make money Is there you that, go i mean do people there care talk all the trash you want and then he says for those that remain value investors however it's an exciting time boom He's, yeah right that's what he says okay then he, he was talking about like what's happening in the market right now in the state of the market right now and he said you don't get these valuations he's talking about he mostly brought up PE ratios, so price to earnings ratios right now. He said, you don't get these valuations except at the bottom of bear markets or the middle of recessions. And usually when this happens, you have an alternative like cheap bonds for a given company. So I'll explain that a little bit more. Saying at the bottom of bear market, let's just take that example. You might have a stock that's dropped 80% of something you brought up. And he went, you could buy that stock, but the stock could go down 90%. Now you've lost half the money. But many times when that happens, you also have, there's like distressed debt that's happening. So you have a bond that's trading 55 cents on the dollar, which you're effectively just betting that the company is going to be solvent in the future. Mm -hmm. And so buying the bond is a lot less risky. He's saying that's typically what happens. But right now, we're not in a distressed debt situation for many companies. He's not saying at all. He's saying for many companies that are trading at three, four, five, six price to earnings ratios, which is a low price to earnings ratio, saying you have, you have companies in there that are generating cash that aren't in distressed debt situations. Uh, and so it's kind of an interesting time. And he's finding a good amount of opportunity there. So I'll pause. I want to get your reaction to that. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, the distressed debt piece is uh, very interesting. I've seen a few opportunities there. That's not for your average investor by any sense. But I am still working my way through the 27-hour uh, a new release of securities analysis and the bond distressed debt well debt portion of that has a uh, preference by howard marks like an intro yeah. to yeah. that chapter Fa- i mean fascinating if you're digging into this einhorn piece and you can layer on top the howard marks piece and the original grandma dodd discussion of debt it's just mind-blowing how many deals might be out there but it takes a lot of work man <laughs> yeah it it takes, which is why he just just buys spy or VTI and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, it, it, even in the seventeen minutes, you can hear the way that Einhorn talks about just thinking about the market, and it's in that short period of time, it's more complex than most people. And when I say most, I mean ninety eight percent of people 
should really be yeah. thinking about where the, the market sits. But I do enjoy personally seeing inside the brain of folks like this uh, to, just to see how they're thinking. Doesn't mean you follow it. Just to see how you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Can I actually roll that into something else? Something you sent to me? Please. Speaking yeah. of seeing how people are thinking, whew, there's this piece about forecasting called The Inaccuracy of Market Forecast. You sent me this piece. It's on wealthmanagement.com. And it summarizes a lot of what we've discussed qualitatively, but it summarizes it in a quantitative way. And there are many pros and cons and holes that you can poke in this kind of quantitative analysis. But I think it's kind of given the information that's out there, it's some of the best I've seen that you could possibly do. The yeah, shout out to Larry Swindro, my boy here, who wrote There this. you go. There you go. Speaking of your boy, Mark Zuckerberg is bulking up a McDonald's these days, getting ready for the fight. That's all. That's all I say about that. He also put an octagon in his backyard. Did you see that text exchange with his yeah. wife? And Priscilla's not happy. <laughs> Priscilla's not happy about it. So great. <laughs> all right. So he says, he says, sorry, I, I thought he says, well, we have plenty of space. <laughs> <laughs> yes we do but let's use it for something oh, different it killed me yeah yeah we're one of the richest families in the world yeah we have plenty of space <laughs> plenty of space <laughs> so this piece the inaccuracy of market forecast what it's about is how following the advice i'll say blindly of market quote-unquote gurus that are out there so people putting out forecasts whether that's on cnbc on a blog, in an article, random interview, podcast, whatever it might be, can in fact have negative value because they can tempt investors to stray away from well-developed plans. I like that that phrase a lot. Um, there's You can take it, you can say negative value generally, but I think the point of tempting an investor from a plan that you already have, which we've talked about ad nauseum, and we will continue to on this podcast, is really important. One of the One of the studies that they brought up here was by or an analyses, I'll say, is by CXO Advisory Group. And what they did was they looked from 2005, 2012, they collected 6,584 forecasts for the U.S. stock market overall offered by 68 experts. So it was during that period where they collected it, but they looked back a little bit further. I think they went back to 1998 and they did Google searching, research report, looking at... uh. They would listen to interview or read interviews that happened, readers submitted gurus, and they basically said, let's look at all of the predictions that we can possibly look at uh, that are robust enough and not vague enough that you can call it a prediction and see whether people are right or wrong. Does the methodology at least make you sense? Know, yeah, I couldn't find it in the article, but it's possible I mixed, missed it. Um, the length of this forecast really matters. Do you know the typical term of these so-called forecasts? There wasn't a typical. So in order to find that, I I went into the the write-up from the CXO advisory group. So I had to go beyond the article itself because the article doesn't say a lot. And yeah, what they did, it wasn't standardized. What they did was they said, if Jeremy Grantham, for example, who was one of the people out there, if he came and said, in the next six months, the market's going to crash, or it, that might be that might not be specific yeah. enough, but some version of that. Yeah. Then they would say, what he said was, in six months, the market will crash. So we will. It's his own term, six months. 
market mm-hmm. crash, right? Yep. So that that's how they did it. So there wasn't anything standard, but and and what they here's where some holes could be poked because it's this is subjective. What they did was they said uh, if someone was going to be bullish or bearish, they looked at the average stock market returns by certain periods of time. So they looked at like one week, one month, three months, six months, twelve months, for example, and said if someone says over the next twelve months I'm bullish. Then they would look at what happened over the next 12 months and say, how does that compare to what a bullish reading would be? And then they would just declare it right or wrong. Right. And so, so there's perfect, right. But that, that's, that's what they did. Make sense. Yeah. So there's a cool chart in here that basically shows the, the expert or guru, which is my first problem with this article, calling these people experts is kind of a joke, but gurus is not (laughs) same. (laughs) And uh, their forecast accuracy, and it's effectively a bell curve around 50%. Of course it is. Short-term market forecasts are a coin flip. Our boy, Jeremy Grantham, who I respect about as much as anyone in the investing community, has a 48% uh, forecast accuracy according to this metric. Where I'm going, Dougals, is, yeah, he probably goes on CNBC too much. Um, they also have <laughs> Jim Cramer, CNBC superstar. I'll, I have yeah, another problem that. with that. I love that. Um, at a 47% accuracy. But w- when these sound bites gets made on CNBC or the like, they typically end up being a short-term forecast. I would contend if you go to GMO's seven-year forecast of returns, it's going to have a much higher accuracy simply because it's valuation-based on a timeline that's much greater where returns actually become more predictable. Valuation actually matters. In the short term, it just doesn't matter. So I don't know. Like This is super interesting, and it's really fun to see percentages next to people's names. But I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy or kind of what we tell you on the show all the time. I don't know what's happening in the next six months. I don't know what's happening in the next two years. But I have a pretty good idea where we're headed 12 years from now. Relatedly, it's a point that I, I, I think it's really important in this piece is what this isn't is an indictment of individuals and their ability to invest. Like It is definitively not except that. for Jim Cramer, except for <laughs> the high likelihood on Jim Cramer. Sorry. But yeah, it's not that what it is, is saying, do not blindly follow what someone says a quote-unquote expert or guru says about what's happening in the market and act accordingly do not do that that's basically what it's saying because even but Dougal, even... this is a, this is an issue because the your your know-nothing investor as buffett would call them goes i don't know this guy's on cnbc he's got to know more about the market no. than me where are they supposed to who are they supposed to follow where are they supposed to get that advice no i i agree with that that i that's that but i think that's why this is valuable because it's just saying don't like don't do that but it's it's not saying because even like take us for example over the last couple years we've been talking about how there is some version of we've said there's likely a big crash coming here because things are overvalued and they dipped a bit they've come back up there's likely a big crash and what have we done we have put more money into the stock market (laughs) during, during that period in the way that we do it and there are so I think that that that's also what's what's interesting here is like if you look at Jeremy Grantham for the last 69 years, 
Jeremy Grantham has been saying that there's a stock market crash coming. And if you look at what GMO is investing in, there's like alternative investments. There's it's not it's not like Jeremy Grantham is either buying call options or put options on spy and that's it. That is not what Jeremy Grantham does. It's looking at the macro environment and then acting accordingly in really micro ways. If you just take that as a as a broad retail investor and you go, oh, someone said it's going to crash, so I'm going to sell everything and therefore my retirement assets aren't going to go up since 1992, that's not good. Yeah, absolutely. And you could even apply this to us where if someone went through show by show and tried to I mean, we we tried really hard not to make forecaster predictions, but if they classified things, I bet we'd be at 50% accuracy. What I would argue is you'd have to go look at our portfolios and see how those perform over a decade plus to figure out if we know yeah. what we're talking about or not. I would say the same with Jeremy Grantham. The stuff GMO does is really, I, I highly respect it. That doesn't mean it always outperforms, but in some cases it's the desire is not to outperform the desire might be to preserve capital so yeah 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 good point i thought this was interesting i don't know what the clear takeaway is for the average investor maybe there isn't one but if you put this if you put this beside the fact that professional active money managers generally also underperform whatever their own benchmark is it's just do your own research Make your own decisions. Use the inputs that are out there if you want to, out there in the market, but just treat them as inputs. It's just data. Or maybe steer clear of CNBC and the like completely. <laughs> uh, that might be it. Buy, buy well-diversified ETFs every paycheck and never think about it until you do the Bill Perkins calculation that says you got plenty of money and figure out how to enjoy those experiences with the people you love that's a pretty good takeaway you said i don't know what the clear takeaway is and then you drop some no ledge <laughs> all right uh ben carlson of a wealth wrote this article that i've just thrown my hands up in the air at dugos this week it's called one year returns don't matter and listen i've wrote some stupid stuff on my blog and so maybe i don't know uh, good guy but he basically, here's the takeaway. He compares Meta, Apple, NVIDIA, and QQQ and says, oh, they've been great in 2023 and they laid an egg in 2022. And therefore, one year returns don't matter because if you look at two years put together, they come out to about even. And I'm like, yeah, but when Meta went down 65% in 2022, that's when I bought the thing to make the 180 plus percent return in 2023 that's what value investing is so did i misinterpret the spirit of this article well well so spirit's important not the airline airline is not important let me be clear about that the spirit of this is important i believe that i believe the spirit of this piece is to say that you shouldn't take a one-year return and make all decisions based on a one-year return because it's about long-term investment. I think that that's the spirit Fair. of the piece and the words of the piece. <laughs> um, I didn't quite know what to do with because there's also this, there's also this point, the point you brought up is a valuable one. There's also this point that if you say 10-year returns 
or matter, matter, but one year returns don't. I go, well, how do you get to 10 years if you don't have one year? And the one it's year like saying, 200% return ends up being a huge part of the 10 year return. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And you're, you're kind of like, I mean, if your portfolio goes down 50% one year, 50% the next year, 50% the third year, you go, but that doesn't matter. It's about the 10 year return. You go, well, that 10 year return is quite hard right now. I don't know. So it's again, I think I think that the spirit of it is that you should focus on the long term and not the short term. And the long term is a compound of a bunch of short term things. And so, uh, yeah, it, anyway, there's like it's it's a it's a difficult one. I think Ben's trying to do the right thing and Ben gets paid to write a bunch of stuff. It's kind of like the last yeah. element that we're talking about. When you, you have to write something on a weekly basis yep. or bi-weekly basis, it's hard to continue coming up with stuff. But I guess, I mean, it, I'm talking my book here, but this is why you buy based on valuation. Because then you don't get the high flyer stuff that's worthless. And you get the stuff that has a potential to do, that has huge upside with limited downside. And yeah, anyway. All right, so let's talk. I've been on a commercial real estate kick for a long time. Wall Street Journal Journal had an article on local malls. It talks specifically about a mall in Connecticut. Really, all I want to do is throw out a couple of values here. This is happening all over the place. As of 2012, this mall was thought to be worth $150 million. <laughs> Sold this year for $9 bucks. One's lower than the other. Lower, it's a hundred and forty million dollars. <laughs> yes. Do you have another number you want to throw out? Because I have some words I want to no. throw out. Go throw throw <laughs> yeah. some words out. My, this is okay. One, I'm chuckling while I'm saying this. And when things like that, like when valuations go down like this, there are also there are jobs lost. Uh, this is in a real town with real people. I, I want to acknowledge that. And I just want to say that this article ends, this Wall Street Journal article ends by saying that the only like cornerstone of this mall right now is a JCPenney. <laughs> I think the mall set itself up for failure. Like I, I didn't know, I didn't know what else to do with this point. Has the mall operator not been alive for a while like I, I don't i didn't know what to do with this <laughs> this fact that that's what you're hanging your hat on dude goes it's not like it's not like the commercial property guy that has kodak as their main tenant it, it, like they don't want jc penny <laughs> to be their anchor <laughs> that's what they're dealt with no one else wants to be their anchor it says a lot about the economics of that situation and why the thing i mean I can guarantee you there's people that look at this mall and say it's worth less than zero simply because of the maintenance costs to redevelop or refi, you know, to make it usable. Okay. Um, okay. Your, your, your point, I get your point. However, I would believe that if you said, oh, and all that's left is JCPenney because all the valuable tenants are no longer there. But what they were hanging their hat on before was Christmas tree shops. And Bed Bath and Beyond. So 
this is a it's a multitude i can't remember what it, there was some something we were talking about recently we were like this wasn't just one bad decision <laughs> this was a series of many bad decisions that came in here and i'm sure if you keep going back they lost their blimpies they lost that they lost their nobody beats the whiz they lost the their their heckinger yeah exactly i'm like okay and again i as i mentioned before chuckling throughout this because of the like ridiculous nature of the situation but i understand that there are there are people and jobs and humans that live in this town i understand that and sabaro it doesn't even mention sabaro but you know there was a sabaro that you you just brought that up and you know there was one minimum one yeah you know i i tried since i love uh dumpster diving i tried to get find some deals in commercial real estate and everything i've looked at is just like incredibly depressing because you can see the revenue is declining so rapidly yes that the equations don't work right now so at some point in the next five years the the next billionaires are going to make really smart bets in commercial real estate on yes. distressed debt on other things yeah and it's going to be really fun to watch the rebirth here but man right now i don't know i don't know how to make money there it's like this really bizarre we're in the messy thing. middle the article says what's that we're in the messy middle it's hard in the messy middle yeah yeah, yeah. figure that out the article says that on average low-end malls are worth um 50 to 70 percent less than they were when they peaked in late uh 2016 but my point is i think they might flip at in a lot of cases down 90 to 95 percent yeah. or 100 and then you and then it requires a whole bunch of reinvestment dollars to make it actually work yeah Weird it's gonna be time for this gonna be super hard and there's gonna be a lot of money that's spent on trying to make them work when some of this is just inevitable I mean, I guess it's funny. You mentioned the JCPenney. What I was thinking to replace that Christmas tree shop is just bring in a Coles baby. Like Coles could fix all this. <laughs> that is, that is the new anchor. Spe speaking of talking really book, activewear, <laughs> activewear. Okay, all right. I think that's yeah, a good a note nice to end on. Activewear space, Diggles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything on. else in your fishbowl? No, that's all I got. All right, buddy. Welcome back to the States. Thank you. It's good. Again, it's it's good to be back. I felt that meanness and I was like, home. Feels like home. <laughs> yeah. Next time I see you, I'm gonna try and run over you. Um <laughs> and say, seriously? Yeah, it was so when she turned around and went seriously, I was like, this woman was like 90 years old, could barely move. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.